I've mentioned for the last couple of weeks that David Morris would be here this morning, and apparently I neglected to say, I will also be here, because I've had a couple of people come up to me and go, what are you doing here? (laughs) Yeah, David is here for the Embracing the Truth conference, which begins on Tuesday night, and then goes Tuesday night, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. You know that we're not going to be here Wednesday night, right? Right. No Wednesday night services here. If you want to go to church somewhere on Wednesday night, come out to Gladeville. On Thursday, I think you preach after me. Mm -hmm. So if I'm not kind with the clock, Friday morning, you preach before me. Right, I'll remember it. I know. (laughs) (laughs) I know. So David Morris is one of the men who ordained me 17 years ago, so our friendship goes back several years before that. So it's hard to believe, but we've known each other for at least 20 years, and he is a a terrific preacher, a fine exegete of the word. You know that I only invite a, a handful of people that I trust to ever come here and preach to you. So uh, welcome, David Morris, and I'll get out of your way. Welcome, David Morris. Thank you. Thank you so much. Good morning. I give honor to our God who is worthy of all praise. We magnify him, Father, Son, and Spirit, the one eternal God, and the trinity of his blessed and sacred persons. And I am grateful for the privilege to be with you, my brothers and sisters. It's always a blessing to have the opportunity to be here at Grace Christian Assembly and as well to be with your pastor. I appreciate so much his fellowship and for the camaraderie and uh, the unity and uh, truth that we've had. It's been a blessing to enjoy that over a number of years and to enjoy it more as uh, the Lord has opened the door for us to be in conferences together. Uh, We have that opportunity this week, and then the Lord's given us that in Texas in uh, June generally, and then as well Chattanooga. So we thank the Lord for the kindness of God in that regard. And I'd like to add this additional sidebar note. Since last year when I was with you, uh, Jim had a debilitating uh, event, and I am so very grateful for God's good mercy to him. How God so marvelously blessed him through that. Uh, Just uh, as we were informed of it, the day of it by Megan, or maybe the day, I think the day of, to see the progress God granted him in the space of a few months, just tremendous. So we rejoice with you in God's goodness there. And I'm thankful for uh, the continuing fellowship we have here below. It would have been elsewhere had it not been here, but I'm glad that it's here below for for my purposes. I want to invite you this morning to turn with me to the letter to Titus, please. And I'd like to read from chapter 2. I was going to read chapter 2, beginning at verse 11, into chapter 3, verse 8. But uh, Thaddeus has already read for us from Titus chapter 3. Did you know I was going there, Thaddeus? Okay, I know someone who did, but I just wondered if you knew that. I I didn't think you did. 
But I'd like to bring to your attention some words of the Apostle Paul inspired of the Spirit in Titus, the second chapter. And we'll be making reference, the Lord willing, to chapter 3. And so that's why I had planned to extend my reading into that portion. But, but since that's been read in your hearing, we'll, we'll uh, just ask you to notice verses 11 through 14 of Titus chapter 2. And those words we read, beginning again at verse 11 of Titus 2. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. We trust that our God would add his blessing today, his stamp and seal to his written and read word, his inspired and preserved word. Together may we just bow before him to ask his mercies to us. Father, we're grateful for the privilege that is ours to unite with your people this morning. In the name of your worthy son. Father, we're thankful as well for the privilege to open your word. To have a copy of it, Father. That that book that you've inspired. That book above every other book. And Father, we honor you this morning for the fact that you have privileged us in your grace. To have your written word. We thank you that by your spirit, through your sovereign grace. We hear your voice in this book. And Father, we pray this morning that you would magnify your son in our lives. How grateful we are for him, the one whom you sent to be our savior. And we pray that your spirit would exalt him, that he would make him large in our lives, Father, in a greater way so that we might honor him as we live for him in this world. We pray, Father, now you do these things for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. As we look at these words of Titus 2 this morning, I want to give you by way of a title this, Lessons in the School of Grace. Lessons in the School of Grace. If you notice as Paul speaks of the grace of God that brings salvation in verse 11, he says of that grace, teaching us in verse 12. And there's a definite sense in which I think the apostle, as he writes to Titus, who is on the island of Crete, because of some issues that have arisen there, Paul wanted this young man, almost an adjutant to him in the service of the Lord, to be there at Crete so that he could deal with those issues that had arisen among the churches there. And as Titus is there, the apostle wants that young man to know what to keep foremost in ministry, what to keep uh, before him in his field of vision so that he might present that to God's people so they might have that in their field of vision. And there's a predominant note here on the grace of God. And not only on the grace of God as we think of it singularly, but the grace of God in a multifaceted way as he presents by inspiration what grace does. And in that regard, there's, there's a, a past cast, a past tense that's seen. There's a present tense aspect of the grace of God. And there's a, a future aspect of the grace of God that's seen in these words of Titus 2, 11 through 14. And as we think about that, 
We consider particularly the whole realm of salvation. And as I know you're aware, because of the teaching you receive here uh, from week to week, I, I know that you're aware of the fact that salvation has three tenses. There's a sense in which I can say I have been saved. But there's also a sense in which I can say I'm being saved. And there's a sense as well in which I can say, hallelujah, I will be saved. And because of that reality, uh, the grace of God covers it all. There's that past aspect of grace's work. There's that present aspect of grace's work. And there's that future aspect of the work of grace. So we want to think about that together this morning. And uh, as we do, may God lead our hearts to rejoice in his son and in the depth of the mercy and grace that God shows to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, let's think first of all, please, as we consider that grace and that salvation, may we think first of all of salvation from sin's penalty. In those words of verse 11, the apostle writes, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. Uh, now, some want to take that word all men and, of course, extend it in a way that uh, goes well beyond the bounds of Scripture. But if you want a good illustration of how the grace of God's appeared to all men, you can go back to verses 1 through 10, Titus chapter 2. And you can find the apostle speaking to Titus as to how he's to instruct the various groups within the Lord's church. In Crete, he speaks of old men and young men, of old women and young women. And by the way, he doesn't give any age to that. And I've never tried to do that. That would be a dangerous thing for a man to do, right? Paul speaks of categories there. He speaks of slaves and masters. In other words, he speaks of the, the strata within humanity. And in that way, we think of how the grace of God, irrespective of class, irrespective of gender, irrespective of those categories in which we slice humanity up, the grace of God breaks through all those categories and praise God, that grace displays itself. And you can go beyond that to racial groups, ethnic groups, thank God. In that day that John pictures in Revelation, when they, we stand before the Lamb, there are going to be those from every kindred, tribe, tongue, and people. And so it is that the grace of God's appeared to all men. I'm glad for that this morning. Uh, we could camp out here, but I don't want to. But I'm glad, and I, I'm feeling kind of happy too because it's good to be with you, you know. But I'm feeling glad because I'm thinking about how the grace of God has appeared to all men. In other words, God could have kept his grace bound up with Israel. But he didn't do that. As the Lord Jesus told Nicodemus in John chapter 3, for God so loved the world. Now, we like to take that beyond the bounds, but oh, I'm glad this morning that when Nicodemus, the teacher in Israel, heard those words, God so loved the world, the Lord Jesus was serving notice on him. God loved the Gentiles too. And I'm glad for that. I'm glad that the grace of God visited Fayetteville, North Carolina, back in 1973, when there was a young white boy going to hell and happy of it. I was on my way to hell and enjoying my trip. 
But oh, hallelujah, grace interrupted me on my mad rush to hell. Grace plucked me as a brand from the burning and saved me. And I'm glad that grace has appeared to all men. I'm glad that grace isn't hedged in by the boundaries we erect. And that, brothers and sisters, is the way grace works. Think about it when you think about that Jewish rabbi in Acts who with fury was breathing out threatenings and wrecking havoc among the Lord's people. And how many of y'all would have put Saul on your most likely to be converted list? (laughs) The man writing this letter, how many of you would have put Saul on your most likely to be converted list? I imagine if you'd have been a Christian in the church of Jerusalem, if you had Saul on your prayer list, it wouldn't have been under the salvation heading. It had probably been under the, please destroy quickly, Lord. But oh, he was a chosen vessel. He was a vessel of mercy. That's what grace does, I tell you. Grace that works mightily. Grace that by that mighty lever of the work of Christ pulls sinners out of the wrath, the pit that I deserve for all eternity. That's what grace does. Now, how does grace do that? We see verse 11 saying generally, the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. But how does grace accomplish that? Well, verse 14 gives us a statement of how grace does that. Notice it, please. As the apostle mentions our Savior, the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, in verse 13, he says about our Savior in verse 14, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. That's how grace has appeared that brings salvation. That's how I past tense have been saved, saved from sin penalty because Christ gave himself for us that he might redeem us, that he might Pay the penalty, pay the price. I was a slave on the auction block of sin. The cry went out. What will you bid for this old slimy, scuzzball sinner? By the way, that's what I was. I was, excuse me, ladies. That's what I was. What will you bid for this slimy, scuzzball sinner? Nobody moved. Nobody stirred. They knew my value. But Jesus Christ stood out of the crowd and said, I'll give the purchase price of my shed blood for that sinner. And I've been bought at a price this morning. I've been redeemed. I've been been bought with something that surpasses silver and gold, surpasses the valuables of this world, the most enduring substance of this world. I've been bought with the precious blood of the Lamb, Christ Jesus. And because of that, because of the purchase price of His blood, I've been rescued this morning. You see, 
the good news of the gospel is of an effectual sacrifice. That is of a substitutionary work that was effective. What do you mean by that, Brother David? I mean Christ gets what he paid for. I hope you heard me. Christ got what he paid for. And when he laid down the purchase price of his blood, praise God, he was going to secure the release of those for whom that ransom was paid. And so it is that Paul speaks of the fact that Christ gave himself that he might redeem us. You see, that deals with my enslavement to sin. Which is something a lot of folk don't know much about today. A lot of people talk about free will. But what many don't realize in talking about free will is that my will is tied to my nature and my nature is enslaved. So what does that mean for my will? Well, if my will's tied to my nature, then my will, like my nature, is enslaved. It doesn't have the power of contrary choice. That is, it doesn't have the power to choose contrary to its character and nature. And that's the reality that most folk don't think about. I like the way one preacher from West Virginia put it. Brother Scott said, "Mm," he was talking about man's freedom. He said, yes, he said, man's free. He says he's as free as a frog in a snake's belly. (laughs) Free to wiggle around all he wants to, but not free to get out. And that's man in sin. You and I are free. We can wiggle around in sin all we want to. You might not choose a certain sin that I would have chosen. But I'm not free to choose to get out of my sin because I'm enslaved. And the redemptive work of Christ deals with my enslavement. It deals with that which had me bound. I love the way Mr. Wesley put it in that hymn, And Can It Be? Some of you remember that stanza. He says, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening, a life-giving ray. I woke the dungeon flame with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. That's what grace did. I was bound and dead in sin's dungeon in darkness. But Christ Dispelled by his work, that life-giving voice and ray that brought light and freedom and life to me. That's what his redemptive work accomplished. But not only that, the apostle says in verse 14, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself. I didn't just need to be freed from my enslavement. I also needed to be clean. Because I was filthy. A matter of fact, I was like the prodigal. I was hog pen filthy. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Because some of you have been down to the hog pen. You know what hog pen filthy is. Because that's what I was. I remember years ago hearing a a Christian singer tell the story of how he was... uh, He was accosted by someone about his Christianity. This person, oh man, you Christians, man, you all been brainwashed. And this, this brother answered, he said, you know, you're right, man. This is back in the 70s, so that's why so many mans are coming up, you know. 
You're right, man. But let me tell you, the only there's all these Christians and you's. We've all chosen who we wanted to wash our brains. He said, mine were dirty old sick brains anyway. They needed a scrub. And that was the nature. We, we, we were not only enslaved, we were also filthy. But Christ, by his work, gave himself for us at the cross, at the tree, so that he might redeem us, but also that he might purify us. That he might pay the price that secured my release, my freedom, but also do the work that brought cleansing to me. And oh, I've been hard pinned filthy. But let me tell you, it sure feels good to be clean this morning. Amen. Oh, and the price again, caught so well by Mr. Hoffman, I believe it was in that hymn, Mr. Elisha Hoffman uh, from Oregsburg, Pennsylvania. We preached up in the Schuylkill County where Oregsburg is. Seeing the red church where Mr. Hoffman's father, I believe it was, pastored. Mr. Hoffman wrote, what can wash away my sin? And he answered, nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow. That makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Christ gave himself that he might purify. Katharizo is the Greek word. That he might cleanse me. Oh, and it feels good to be clean this morning. But if we could duck over to where Brother Thaddeus read into Titus 3 just a moment. and Think about a little bit more of this past tense of salvation. The apostle makes it clear when we say, I have been saved. That when we say that, we can't ground it in any works of our own. Verse 5 of Titus 3 makes that clear. But rather, it's according to his mercy that he saved us, past tense. How was that? By the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. Think about that a moment. There we have that word washing. We've seen that in verse 14 of chapter 2. That he might purify, katharizo, cleanse. But that washing was more than just a cleansing, for it was the washing of regeneration. Boy, it's getting gooder and gooder. <laughs> That's what Brother Ward used to use that word, you know. He said, somebody said, you made, you made that word up. He said, all words are made up. <laughs> I like that. That's, that's good thinking there, you know. All words are made up. But you see, he doesn't just deal with my, my enslavement. He, he doesn't just deal with my filthiness. There's regeneration. He gives me a new nature. Because regeneration, palignesia, this Greek word, it speaks of a, a new birth. It speaks of the fact that, praise God, I've got a new nature now. Because you see, to be cleansed, but not have a new nature, that's like... Washing the hog, and then the hog goes right back to its filth. But when a person is saved, there's a nature that's given that is changed because of the new birth, the reality of the new birth, of which our Lord spoke to Nicodemus in that third chapter of John. By the way, this word regeneration, polygonesia in the Greek, is used in Matthew 19 of what's going to happen one day to the world. When the Lord Jesus Christ 
gives this earth planet a new birth, what will that be, brothers and sisters? That was free, no extra charge, by the way. But what will that be when our Savior takes us a new humanity and puts us in a new heaven and new earth wherein dwells righteousness? Restitution of all things. What a blessed day that will be. The words of Acts 3, by the way. Amen. We look forward to that. One aspect further we can say is found in verse 7 that Thaddeus also read, chapter 3. And there we find it. Let's just read, picking up at verse 5 again. Renewing of the Holy Ghost, those last words of verse 5, which he shed on, the, shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that we, being justified by his grace, that being justified by his grace, excuse me, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Justification as well. Another aspect of that past tense, I have been saved. So I've been redeemed. I've been purified and cleansed. I've been born again and I've been justified. That is declared right in the court of heaven. The gavel of the judge of all the earth who must do right is dropped. And here's the sentence. David Morris stands righteous in my presence. But I know what I've done. So does he. But I have a substitute. And because of that substitute, the gavel of the court of heaven is dropped and said, not guilty, not only not guilty, positively righteous. Reckoned to my account through the account of him who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, but he was made sin. Him who knew no sin was made sin for us. God has made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might be the righteousness of God in him. And now, as God looks on me and his son, I'm righteous. And that, brothers and sisters, is the past tense of salvation. That's a blessed reality that God's people know. And even if I'm saved and I don't realize the fullness of it, oh, what a blessing it is as I learn more. Oh, you may not like onions, so this may not be a good illustration, but you know, they talk about unwrapping the layers of an onion. Boy, think about that with regard to our salvation. And as you sit here week to week and sit under Pastor Jim's ministry, sometimes a new layer will unfold before you. And all of a sudden you'll think, wow. <laughs> as we used to say in the 70s, you'll say it backwards, wow. <laughs> <laughs> that came kind of late on some of you, right? Wow, I, I didn't realize he did that for me? That's part of the package? Yeah. And through eternity, if you will, more of it will unfold. The depth of the grace of God in Jesus Christ to us. Let's move on, though, and think about now, if we could, salvation from sin's power. Not just salvation from sin's penalty, but we can say as we think about salvation from sin's power, I am being saved. And the apostle, particularly in the words of verse 12, keys on this. It's seen as well in the last part of verse 14, but notice what the grace of God that brings salvation does. Verse 12, teaching us that, denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world or age. Now, when we think about that, 
Here's where the grace that has saved us now instructs us in our daily living. It teaches me what to say no to, and it teaches me what paths to pursue. That's something that grace, if it has manifested itself in the past tense work of salvation, that's something grace will do in the present tense of salvation. Now, some people want to separate that today. Some people want to say, well, you may be saved, but, you know, uh, let me put it the way some express it. You you, you can know Jesus Christ as your Savior now, but you don't have to trust him as Lord. Later on, if you want to do that, you can pick him up as Lord. Well, I can imagine when my wife came to the marriage altar and, you know, she said, I, Terry, Lynn Avery, take you, David Morris. Well, no, hold on. I, I don't like that Morris part. David's okay, but I don't want to take the Morris part, you know. No, she got the whole package, you know. Well, you and I have been married to another, Romans 7 tells us, him who's raised from the dead. And we've been married, we've been wed by faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I don't get to, like Mr. Vance Habner used to call it, cafeteria Christianity or smorgasbord salvation. I don't walk through the line and say, I I, I want that, Lord, but now that part there, no, no, I don't care for that. No, salvation's a package deal. And if I've been saved, then there's that work of sanctification and progress now in which I'm being saved. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying we'll be perfect. If my wife were here, she could add her loud amen to that, you know. Because I'm not. And yet, there has been, because of that regenerating work, that change of nature, there is that which the grace of God now does in us who are saved that teaches us to deny ungodliness, to deny those things that don't follow what marks true reverence for God and the fear of the Lord in my life. It also teaches me to, to deny Worldly lust. Now notice that's capital S because a lot of times we think about lust in one direction, sexual desire, but this is all manner of worldly desires. It could be the desires of the world that fill us with greed. It could, the the Spirit of God by the grace of God in the gospel teaches us that's not what you're living for. You're pursuing Christ. As Paul in Philippians 3 says so well, as he speaks about how he counts all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, he says that I may know him. You and I now have an object that's greater than our hearts that fills our vision, and we pursue him because of what grace has done. And that grace teaches us negatively then to deny ungodliness and worldly lust, to say no to them. But it also tells us we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Now that word soberly, uh, sober-mindedness is mentioned in chapter 2 of Titus earlier. I like to think of it this way. It's that work of the grace of God that trains our minds to think rightly. That is to think soberly, seriously, rightly about how life ought to be looked at. Because one thing that 
we found, I believe, is that we all tend to look at life through the wrong glasses. And what the grace of God teaches is how we need to look at life. And that's one good reason why I ought to feed more on the Word of God regularly. Because you remember the old uh, saying, data, uh, what is it, data in, data out? Garbage in, garbage out. If I'm feeding on the Word of God, then that's going to aid me in living soberly. It's going to aid me in living righteously and godly in this present world. And grace teaches that. Now, the apostle emphasizes that in this little book of Titus. Three chapters, and yet, notice the words again that Brother Thaddeus read in verse 8 of chapter 3. This is a faithful saying, and these things I will that thou affirm constantly, that they which have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable unto men. Now, what Paul is saying here is, in verse 8, what he has just mentioned about the grace of God, he said, this is a faithful saying, and these things, looking back, I will that thou affirm constantly. And the King James, it may not be as clear because there's a second that, and it seems like that may be the that that he wants Titus to affirm. I hope you understood that. <laughs> Thank you, Tom. Uh, in other words, some think that what Paul's saying here is this is what, what, what I want you to affirm. That they that have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. But that's not it. That's not the that. You see, the that... In that case, <laughs> boy, there are a lot of that's in here, aren't there? The that in that case is what is a hena clause in the Greek New Testament. In other words, it's an or, in order that clause. So let me go back with that in mind and read the King James again, okay? Verse 8, this is a faithful saying, and these things, that is the things I've just mentioned, I will that thou affirm constantly in order that they which have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. In other words, Paul says... Titus, as you affirm the gospel there, as you preach the good news of God's justifying grace, of God's redeeming grace, of God's cleansing grace, of God's regenerating grace, as you do that, those who believe this message, they'll be careful to maintain good works. In other words, there's something about the gospel in the lives of the saved that makes us want to honor Christ. That makes us want to in our lives live before the world as though we're really under new management. As though we're now under his lordship in our living. And that is one of the upshots. One reason though Paul wanted this to be constantly affirmed seen back in chapter 1. If you would turn there in Titus to chapter 1. As uh, we come to the end of that chapter, in verse 15, we read this. <clears throat> Again, Titus 1.15. Unto the pure all things are pure, but unto them that are defiled and unbelieving is nothing pure. But even their mind and conscience is defiled. They profess that they know God, but in works they deny him, being abominable and disobedient unto every good work reprobate. Notice what Paul says here about some 
false teachers there on the island of Crete where Titus was who professed to know God. But the bad thing was in works, they denied him. And beyond that, they were reprobate. That is disapproved, rejected to every good work. That's not what grace teaches us. In other words, the profession of a genuine believer will be marked by a change of life. Not perfection, but the difference. And that's one thing that the grace of God teaches us. The grace of God leads us to realize the truth of what the angel told Joseph in Matthew one twenty one. You remember those words as the angel shared with Joseph about the child that Mary was carrying. Joseph was minded to put uh, Mary away privately when he learned she was expecting. But the angel came and said, fear not, Joseph, to take unto thee, Mary, thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. She shall bring forth a son and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Thank God he does that. And he does that in the penalty of sin from which I have been saved. But he does that as well from the power of sin from which I'm being saved. And that's a, that's a reality again that, that the scriptures would, would press to us. I was reading this morning in one of the tracts of Bible reading that I do, Mark chapter 8. And our Savior spoke about this matter of denying what the grace of God teaches us. After he talked about taking his own cross, you remember... Mark chapter 8, and remember Peter who had just confessed him, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. When Peter hears the Lord Jesus start talking about being rejected by the high priest and being put to death on a cross, Peter said, oh no, Lord, won't happen. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. But then Jesus goes on to say, whoever will not come after me and take up his cross and deny himself, not worthy to be my disciple. In other words... Grace instructs us that not only must Christ bear the cross, we too must, in a life of denying ourselves, follow him. Now, that doesn't earn my salvation. That's part of my salvation. In other words, that's part of what grace does. For grace doesn't just save me from the penalty of sin. Grace saves me from the power of sin. And... uh, I think about the words of the hymn writer. Some of you may know that hymn, Must Jesus Bear the Cross Alone and All the World Go Free? No, there's a cross for everyone and there's a cross for me. I'm called to follow him in cross-bearing as I say no to myself. And I have to tell you, I've been in Christ a little while now. This coming September will make 44 years that I've been in Christ But I'm still learning what it is to say no to myself. Grace is still teaching me that reality. I realize, you know, as I swing through here, Smyrna, Georgia, on a Sunday morning. Smyrna, Smyrna, did I say Georgia? I'm sorry. My apologies. (laughs) To all of you Tennesseans, my apologies. (laughs) I don't know why I did that. Smyrna, Tennessee. As I pass through Smyrna, Tennessee, some of you might think that this evangelist, this itinerant minister, the next best thing to slice bread. But don't fool yourselves. I'm a sinner saved by grace, and grace is still teaching me what it means 
to be more like Jesus. I'm having to learn lessons every day, but I'm glad for the lessons because that's what grace does. Grace teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly lust that we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. One more aspect, though. There's a future tense of salvation, and we see that as well. And we see it in those words of the apostle in verse 13. And here we see salvation from sin's presence. I will be saved. And the apostle anticipates that as he says what we're doing that grace also instructs us in. Verse 13, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ. I love that verse. I know your pastor does too. Uh, One reason we love it is because it speaks of the imminent return of the Lord Jesus for his people. That is the fact that any moment we may not finish this service and you would hear a trumpet sound and we're gone. Oh, that rapture business. Yep. (laughs) We'll be caught up. I like that. Wow. One person put it this way. I'll break the law of gravity someday. <laughs> Boy, I try to do that now, and gravity reminds me it's, it's, you're still under that law. But one day, we're going to be made what? Changed like he's been changed. And this mortal will put on immortality, this corruptible We'll put on incorruption. That sounds good, doesn't it, Brother Conrad? <laughs> Ooh. Why? Because the Lord Jesus Christ, who died to redeem me, did not just die to redeem my soul. He died to have me body, soul, and spirit. And one day, this vile body will be made like unto his glorious body. And I'll be changed. Hallelujah. Oh, what will that be? I can't tell you, but I'm looking forward to it. By the way, that's the next installment. And it's on the way. And I believe it's nearer than when we first believed. May we be looking forward to that then. Looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the one who is our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And as we think about this and conclude on that note, Christ our hope, I'd ask you today, are you looking for him? You know, there's some times in my day that I have to consciously think, you know, you're not looking for him. Paul talks about grace teaching us to look for him. I remember years ago, The church in which I grew up in Fayetteville, the pastor of the church preached on the second coming of Christ. Get ready, Christian, the king is coming. And as he closed the sermon, he shared an experience that he had had when he had been in Canada years ago, years before this. He said that he was in Canada, I believe in Ottawa, which is the capital of the country. And uh, as he was in Ottawa, there was a parade because the King of England had come to the Commonwealth country of Canada. And because of the parade, of course, a crowd gathered in the 
this pastor was there in the crowd, in the group, and as the king passed by and the parade was over, he as an American citizen said, what was so great about that? <laughs> and one of the Canadian citizens who stood around him overheard his remark and said, he's not your king. <laughs> Brothers and sisters, our king is coming. May we be looking for him. And I, I, I ought to be looking for him because that's my king. Hallelujah. I, he, he, he may not be the world's king, but he's my king. The world's not looking for him, but I ought to be expecting him. Because he said, if I go away, I will come again and receive you unto myself. That where I am. There you may be also. And by the way, that was his prayer for us in, in John 17. He said, Father, I will that they whom thou hast given me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory. May you and I be taught by grace to be looking for that future installment of our salvation. When we can say, I will be saved, to which we say now rather, I will be saved. What, what will it be when it says, when we can say past tense, I've been saved. Body, soul, and spirit. And that's the reality of what grace does. I'm thankful for the privilege to be with you this morning, brothers and sisters. It may be that among us there's one who doesn't know that reality of what grace does. And if that's the case, I would say to you, run to Jesus Christ right now. As a sinner, go to him because he came into the world to save sinners. And when Paul said that, he said this. He said it this way. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation, all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I'm chief. So if you find yourself today outside of that grace, then today would you look to Jesus Christ in faith and repentance. If you do, we'll know how, why you do it, how you do it grace. As Mr. Newton wrote, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. But we'd press upon you the urgency of trusting the Lord Jesus Christ, believing on His name, and knowing that grace without which no one will be saved, without which you will perish." Christ be precious to you then. Thank you for listening to this Sunday morning message from Grace Christian Assembly. Please visit our website at salvationbygrace.org and join us next time when we gather around the Word and study God's sovereign grace.